Welcome to Redemption Church on this Sunday. This morning, we're going to be going on through the book of Matthew over the past uh, several weeks and uh, months, and over the course of the last year, we've been working through um, the book of Matthew, and uh, a couple weeks ago, or last week, I can't remember when, but we transitioned into a series that we're calling Revealed, where we're looking into Matthew, specifically in a part of Matthew, where Jesus is revealing to his disciples exactly who he is, what he's about, where he's going, and what the implications of who he is, what that carries out for them. Uh, Before we get started, though, uh, I would be remiss if we did not acknowledge that um, tomorrow uh, we'll be celebrating in our nation um, the life and the legacy of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement. And so let me just say right off the bat, especially after we just read from Romans 5, where Scripture is very clear that reconciliation is a gospel issue. And Scripture is very clear that to the church has been given the ministry of reconciliation. And because we can be reconciled to God through the person of Jesus Christ, then that means that we can be reconciled to one another in an appropriate manner and an appropriate way as well. Um, And so there is much work to be done, uh, even though we can celebrate the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the people, the men and women who struggled with him. uh, There's still much work to be done, and there's a place for the church to be involved in that ministry of reconciliation. Um, And so let me encourage you as believers um, to be aware of the fact that reconciliation still needs to happen to be aware of the fact that God has called us to that very thing. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll move on with our series and with the book of Matthew this morning. God, thank you for giving us the opportunity to be together this morning. God, thank you for the brief few moments we've had to hear your word uh, read over us, to hear your word proclaimed, to sing together, to pray together, to be together. Um, And God, even now as we transition and begin to look at Uh, Matthew chapter 16 and what you would have us hear. God, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and minds uh, to speak to us exactly the things that you would have us hear. God, I recognize as I stand on this stage that my words are of little importance, but God, your words are of utmost importance. And so God, I pray that we would hear your words. I pray that Jesus would be lifted high and that we would be drawn to you because of Jesus. God, I pray that you would use me simply as an instrument of your love and mercy, an instrument of grace, an instrument of the gospel, that your word might be proclaimed and that we might be drawn to you. And God, we ask all this, I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus, amen. So if you guys um, pay any attention to TV, uh, you'll know that there's a show on TV right now called Fixer Upper. Who's seen that show? Chip and Joanna Gaines are the two people on that show. Ben will admit to the fact that Chip Gaines is his hero and Ben wants to be just like Chip. You can ask him about that later. But on the show, at the end of the show, um, the whole point of the show is they renovate a house, right? They buy a house and renovate a house. And at the end of the show, there's this big revelation of the changes that have been, been made to the house. A couple of years ago on TV, there was a show called Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Everybody remember that? Uh, they actually renovated a house here in Augusta, and at the end of the show, there would be a bus in front of the house, and they would say, move that bus, and the bus would move out of the way, and there would be this reveal of this new house. And there were implications for the people who got to move into that house. The house usually was renovated because of some need that a family member had or because um, 
they needed more space to foster kids or they had a disabled kid or, or something along those lines. And so there were great implications for the people who received this new house, who, who this new house was revealed to. And that's kind of what we see in Matthew chapter 16 this morning. Um, Jesus is continuing to reveal to his disciples exactly who he is. And there are implications that come along with that revelation. So if you would, read with me through Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Um, it will be up here on the screen, um, but I will read it as well. And feel free to follow along with me in your Bibles if you have them. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Right off the bat, let me just address a few things about this passage before I move on. This is undoubtedly uh, a controversial and even misunderstood passage, as it has been used both to uh, justify the existence of the papacy, the pope within the Roman Catholic Church, and it has been misunderstood in reference to what the gates of hell are that Jesus is talking about. Um, so I'll just say right off the bat, uh, the Roman Catholic argument that Peter is the first bishop of Rome and all other popes after Peter are his successors is much more nuanced and complex than just what this passage portrays. So I'm not going to talk about that this morning. Um, and regarding the gates of hell, if you Google that, you will see that there are dozens of interpretations of what the gates of hell are and where they are and how the church attacks the gates of hell and all these other things. Uh, if you just Google it, you will find dozens and dozens and dozens of responses that you get back. But let me say that if we focus on those things, I think we miss the intent of the passage. We miss what Jesus is really getting at as he says these things. So I'll acknowledge that this passage is controversial to many people, and many people use it to talk about other things other than what we're going to talk about this morning. And many people want to deal with those other things when talking about this passage. But what I want to do is focus in on what I think the intent of Jesus is in this passage and how this passage fits into the bigger story. This passage, like I said, is all about revealing Jesus for who he is. And don't miss this, the implications of what it means that Jesus reveals who he is. Last week, Brent talked about the verses uh, immediately preceding this passage, where Jesus warns his followers to beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, inasmuch as those teachings lead people to seek salvation somewhere other than where they can find it. We saw a little bit about how Jesus' followers had a hard time understanding what Jesus 
was talking about. And so when Jesus talked about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they thought he was actually talking about food. And Brent did an excellent job of laying out for us how Jesus' warning to the disciples plays out for us in our modern day context. But there's a bigger lesson for us here as well. How often are we oblivious to what God is doing around us because we fail to see who Jesus is and what the implications of that are for our lives? We fail to see the power and love of Jesus. We let the cares of life consume us. Good things like career and advancement and home improvement and our kids' education and whatever else can blind us to the spiritual needs of those around us and blind us to the very things that matter most to God. Left to ourselves, we're spiritually dull, we're spiritually blind, and we miss the implications of what Jesus would have us catch just like the disciples did. So that's where I'm going. And so here's what I want you to see in this passage. Number one, Jesus reveals to his disciples who he is. Number two, Jesus reveals his identity is unequivocally tied to the church. And number three, Jesus' revelations of his identity leads to practical implications. And just like Peter, if we focus on the things of man, then we will miss those implications. Jesus reveals to his disciples who he is. Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. That's where the setting of this uh, passage takes place. It's a Hellenistic town in the very northern part of Israel um, that during the time of Jesus was known for both the worship of the emperor of Rome, there was a temple built there for the emperor, as well as the mythological god Pan, half goat, half man. And Jesus asked them in the midst of that setting, who do people say that I am? The disciples answer and they tell Jesus about the opinions of who he is that they've heard all around them from people around them. And if we were to ask people in our modern day context, who is Jesus? I think just like the disciples gave, we would get a variety of answers. National Geographic just released a book last year in 2016 uh, about Jesus. And in that book, um, I think it's called The Story of Jesus. They refer to him as a famous figure, a shepherd, a teacher, a prophet, and a day laborer, among other things. And their answers don't quite get to where Peter goes. Peter gets to the answer pretty quickly when Jesus asks specifically, who do you say that I am? And Peter essentially says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And in saying that, he recognizes Jesus' divinity and he recognizes Jesus' mission to save God's people. He recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament that is going to be the savior of Israel, that's going to save God's people, that he's the rescuer of God's people and the redeemer of God's people. And Jesus, in return, lets Peter know that it's only because God revealed that to him that he's able to say those things. And in Jesus affirming what Peter says to about him, Jesus is essentially saying, you're right, I am the son of God. I am revealing to you I am the son of God. God has revealed to you that I am the son of God. Without a doubt, Jesus is the chosen son of God to come to rescue the world. It's clear right here in this passage, that's what Jesus does. Number two, Jesus reveals that his identity is unequivocally tied to the church. When you think of Colonel Sanders, what do you think of? Chicken, Kentucky Fried Chicken. 
other than those creepy new commercials with the crispy Colonel Sanders, you think of Kentucky Fried Chicken. It may not be the best illustration, but you get the point. Colonel Sanders is tied to Kentucky Fried Chicken, and Kentucky Fried Chicken is tied to Colonel Sanders. When Jesus reveals his identity through the affirmation of Peter's words, Jesus immediately transitions to tie the church and the existence of the church and the building of the church to that identity. They're tied together. Immediately, Jesus does that. Jesus goes on to say, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When Jesus says, upon this rock I'll build my church, right, is he referring to Peter? Is he referring to the confession of faith that Peter just made? That's the rock on which Jesus builds the church. I'll just say this quickly. He's probably referring to both. Representing the apostles, Peter has spoken the foundational truth of the church, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, establishing a church. And eventually, Peter and the rest of the apostles become, according to the book of Ephesians, the foundation of the house of God, the church. And on this foundation of apostolic truth, Jesus promises, I will build my church. When we look at the Old Testament, we see that Peter and the apostles played a huge role in the very beginning of the church. They were the ones that were left to do that. Most of the books of the New Testament were written by the apostles or someone directly connected to the apostles that Jesus is here talking to. And so Jesus does establish his work through the work of the apostles. But it's Jesus that promises to build the church. It's Jesus that ties the revelation of who he is directly to the promise of the church. What needs to be emphasized here is the triumphant authority with which Jesus says, I am going to build my church. The building of the church through evangelism, discipleship, missions, and all those things is not ultimately dependent upon human initiative or human effort. It's built on the fact that Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. And he begins that process through the disciples and it carries on even until today. It's not dependent upon the power and wisdom and faithfulness. It is ultimately dependent upon the power and wisdom and faithfulness of Christ that his church is established. Not that we will build his church, not that missionaries will build his church, not that pastors will build his church, but that Jesus will build his church. In Romans 15, 18, Paul says, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Christ is the one who accomplished it. Christ is the one that brought about the church. Missionaries are crucial. Church leaders are crucial. Church volunteers are crucial. But we are in no way ultimate. Christ is ultimate. It's his church He's building it. We just get to be a part of it. This is why Matthew ended his gospel saying, all authority, or quoting Jesus when he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Because Jesus is saying, I have the authority to do it. Over all the powers of darkness, over death and hell, over governments, over everything, I have the authority to do it. Go and make disciples is I build my church through you. I will be with you. Here's the point though. You can't have Jesus without the church and you can't have the church without Jesus. The two are unequivocally tied together. 
It is a mistake. It is absolutely a mistake to separate the two from one another. A few years ago, there was a local um, church in town who established uh, some meetings downtown with a... um, I don't remember if they were trying to plan another church or if they were just trying to gather people together. But they started an a advertising campaign, a media campaign called Love Jesus But Hate the Church. And if you love Jesus but hate the church, come to our gathering. If you love Jesus but hate the church, come to our meetings because together we can celebrate Jesus. That's an absolute mistake. It's an absolute mistake. You can't love Jesus and hate the church. The church has messed up over the years. The church has done stupid things. The church has hurt people. But you can't separate the fact that the church is the bride of Christ. And when church died on the cross, he died to establish and create his church. And his church exists as the legacy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the church still has a role to play um, in this world as we proclaim the gospel, as we continue to exist, as the church continues to advance and play a role in things like I spoke about earlier, reconciliation of people, but even more importantly, that we would be reconciled to God, that we might be reconciled to one another. You can't love Jesus and hate the church. You can't separate the two of those things together. The church is absolutely a flawed institution. It's a flawed institution because I'm a part of it and because you're a part of it but we're the bride of Christ and together we have a responsibility and the implications of the fact that Jesus died to create the church are part of what we're going to move on and talk about. Number three, Jesus' revelations of his identity leads to practical implications and we can miss those implications just like Peter did if we set our mind on the things of men. Last week in Augusta, it was supposed to snow. Um, it, I think it snowed for like 30 minutes Um, but there was no accumulation of that snow. And my girls and I, my girls are 9 and 11, and we were talking about the snow last weekend. I think it was last weekend. And uh, they said that they wished that it was like the ice storm from 2014. I don't know how many of you remembered the ice storm of 2014. Um, But for several days in Augusta, um, you know, we were without power. I remember during that time, I actually had to sleep in my office at work for a couple of days because of things that were going on. Um, but when, the, when I hear, uh, I wish it was like the ice storm of 2014, I hear no power, no heat, no way to cook food, no way to preserve food, right? No TV, no internet, the important things of life. Um, and my girls here, let's go sledding. Let's go play in the ice. Let's go play in the snow. Uh, for them, they see one part of it, which is great for them, uh, but they miss the implications of what it means to have an ice storm, uh, especially in the south Um, and so sort of what's going on with Peter here, like I said, in verse 16, Peter recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. In verse 21, Jesus states that he must go to Jerusalem and be killed. In verse 22, Peter rebukes Satan. I mean, Peter rebukes Jesus. And in verse 23, Jesus calls Peter Satan. Do you understand how quick of a turn that is? Jesus says, Peter, blessed are you because God has revealed to you that I'm the Messiah. And a few minutes later, I don't know if it's really a few minutes later, but it seems like quickly afterwards, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, God has revealed something great to you. And just a little bit later, get behind me, Satan. What a quick fall from grace. I mean, what a quick turnaround in the way that Peter gets rebuked so 
fast. It takes guts for Peter to say that to Jesus, but, but he only said it because he missed the implications of what Jesus was talking about. It's obviously not an accident that these things are grouped together and that we read them together in the book of Matthew. From the time Peter was a child, he was probably taught that the Messiah would be a conquering king that would deliver God's people from all their oppression. And at this time, in this particular time in the history of Israel, that meant the oppression of Rome. Peter recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah, but he misses what that actually means. The fact that Jesus is the Messiah means that he's going to create a new group of people, the church, that are set apart for his purposes, that is different than, than, than just being the children of Abraham. And more importantly, it means that Jesus is going to suffer and die in order to redeem his people and to establish the church. When Peter hears that Jesus is going to Jerusalem, which will entail suffering, and not just for Jesus, but probably also for Peter. I think Peter gets that part. When Peter hears that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die, he's furious. He rebukes Jesus. But why? Because he had an agenda, I think. And his agenda didn't include suffering. It included Jesus being the kind of Messiah that Peter thought he needed. If your agenda is the end, then Jesus is just the means, and you're trying to use him to get there. And I think that's what Peter does here. But if Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the king that will die for his people, that will redeem Israel and the whole world, you cannot make him a means to your end. You can't come to him negotiating. If you try to negotiate with Jesus, if you say, I'll obey you if then you're not recognizing that Jesus is the king, the Messiah. Don't forget this. Jesus isn't just a king. He's a king on a cross. He's a king going to a cross. He's a king who went to the cross for you. He's a king that had to die for you, that had to die for Peter. And therefore, you can submit to Jesus out of love and trust because of what he did for us. Next week, we're going to start talking about what comes immediately after this passage, taking up your cross Taking up your cross means for you to die to your own agenda, to the things of men, and to instead live for the king. And Peter missed it. Peter just, he just missed it. Jesus had to go to Jerusalem and die to redeem his people, to establish his church, to defeat Satan's sin and death. He died in order to win, to defeat those things. Hebrews 9.22 says this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The reality is this, Jesus' death had to be a violent and a bloody death, not because blood is magical, but because Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf was the greatest gift ever given. And Jesus, in dying on the cross and giving himself for for us, did so that we might be redeemed so that Satan's sin and death might be defeated, that his church might be created and set apart for his purposes under his name, that his church would be about the things of God and not the things of men. By giving his own life in our place, Jesus made the greatest possible sacrifice, the greatest possible payment for the debt that we owed that we could not pay. That's the foundation of the gospel.
You see, Peter missed the implications of what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. He had his own agenda. His eyes were focused in the wrong place. But you know what? Peter's not the only one. We continue to make that same mistake today. The church today is still guilty on focusing on the things of the world, of trying to carry out what we think is God's agenda through human efforts. We do it all the time. The church today is still guilty of giving up our prophetic voice in exchange for seats at the tables of power in our world. We're still guilty of the same mistake that Peter made. Just like Peter, just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, Jesus said he was on his way to die. Just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day who conspired with civil leaders to crucify Jesus, we make the same mistakes. Make no mistake about it. Jesus went to the cross willingly. It was his choice. He wanted to do it, and he did it. But even as Jesus was saying, I must go to Jerusalem, I must die, you would expect that the religious and civil leaders around Jesus who condemned him to death would have been standing up for truth and righteousness, and instead, they condemned an innocent man, the only innocent man, to death. We're really no different. On the cross, Jesus revealed that the systems of this world, both civil and religious, are corrupt and often seek power and oppression instead of justice and truth and righteousness and the furtherment of the gospel. And Jesus beat those systems through his death, not fighting fire with fire, but through the means of God. By dying, Jesus won. And when Jesus rose from the grave, he beat death forever. And that's what Jesus meant in verse 18 when he said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell, more than likely what Jesus was referring to and why Jesus used that phrase was a Jewish expression that means the realm of death. And it's referenced in other parts of Scripture, Psalm, Job. You can find it there. And so consequently, Jesus' promise to Peter is not about storming Satan's lair and conquering demonic powers. The promise in Matthew 16 is not about venturing out on some dungeons and dragons spiritual crusade, but about Christ's guarantee that the church will not be vanquished by death, that the church has no fear when it comes to death. If you think about it, I think this makes much more sense than what Jesus is saying. The imagery makes sense because defensive gates can be used in an offensive manner simply because Jesus is talking about death and death stalks us all. But those of us who confess Christ, we have the assurance that death is not the end, that Jesus has defeated death and the advancement of the gospel and the church has no fear of death. We have the victory through Jesus. Jesus isn't really asking us to go out and conquer anything because he's the one that conquers Satan, sin, and death. What he's asking us to do is to be about the things of God rather than the things of men 
like he pointed to Peter to do. It's Christ that's going to establish his church. It's Christ that's going to continue to establish his church. It's Christ that's going to see the advancement of the church and the advancement of the gospel take place. We're not doing that. We get to be a part of it. But it's Jesus that's doing that because he's the one that won. He's the one that got the victory. He's the one that defeated defeated Satan, sin, and death for all time. Jesus isn't asking us to conquer anything. That's his job. But Jesus is asking us to be about his things, the things of God, the things that Jesus is concerned about. He's asking us to be focused on the things of God. If someone were to ask you, who do you say that Jesus is, right? That's the question that Jesus asked his disciples here. Who do you say that I am? What's your response to that? What's your response to that? Is your response, Jesus is my savior? Jesus is the one that redeemed me? Jesus is the one who did something for me? Is that your response? Is your response something else? Like the disciples said, for the people around Jesus, um, some of them think you're a prophet, some of them think you're Elijah, some of them think you're John the Baptist. What's your response? If Jesus asks you, who do you say that I am, how are you going to respond? I will say that your response has certain implications. And if you say that Jesus is my Messiah, Jesus is the Son of Christ, Jesus is the one who redeemed me, Jesus is the one who called me on his own, called me to be his own, then that carries with it implications. Those implications, I think, are clear from this passage that Jesus has called us to be about the things of God, to be focused on the things of God, not the things of men, not to be distracted by our own agendas, our own wishes, our own ideas about how things should be, but what God would say about those things. Jesus died to establish the church. Jesus set us apart as his own. He gets to set the agenda for who we are and what we do, not us. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to seriously consider those implications and what that means for you. It's not something to take lightly. It's God that does the work to establish his church and to advance the gospel. But Jesus is calling us to to be focused on him and on the things of God. And so what does that mean for you? If you're here and I were to ask you the question, uh, who would you say that Jesus is? And you would not answer the question. Um, Jesus is not, you you wouldn't say Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Um, Then I would ask you simply to um, consider what it would mean for uh, Jesus to be the Messiah um, for you, to be your Redeemer, to be your Savior and to reflect on that. Um, it may not be something, it may not be a place where you're at where you would, you would want that to happen, but I would ask you to at least consider it um, because I believe very clearly and distinctly uh, that Jesus died for you uh, to be your savior, uh, that you might be reconciled to God um, through the person and work of Jesus. So just recognize the fact that however you answer that question, who is Jesus, there are implications that come with it. Um, And I just want you to consider those implications, whatever it might be. Um, We're going to move into a time of response like we do every Sunday here at Redemption. And during this time of response, the band's going to come back up on stage here in a second and uh, continue to lead us in some songs, give us the opportunity to worship through singing. Um, But also during this time, there's opportunities for us to respond in other ways. We have an opportunity to sit 
or to stand right where you are and to reflect on what we've heard this morning, to reflect on whatever God might be speaking to your heart, to your mind, um, and to deal with those things. You have an opportunity as well uh, during this time as a continued act of worship uh, to give. There's a giving basket in the back where you can put your tithes and offerings. Um, During this time as well, uh, there should be somebody in the back who can pray with you if there's something you'd like to pray about, talk about, uh, you have that opportunity. And as well, we have the opportunity to take communion. Uh, We take communion on a regular basis every Sunday here at Redemption because in taking communion, what we're doing is we're standing in front of one another and saying, I believe the gospel to be true and I'm proclaiming to those around me that it is true. We're remembering what Christ has done for us and we're proclaiming that it is true and good and the gospel is, is, is real. And so uh, this morning, if you want to come down the middle aisle and go in either direction and tear off the bread and dip it in the wine or juice, remember the work that Christ has done for us, proclaim to one another that we believe it. If that's not something you can do, I would encourage you to stay where you are. Um, I don't want you to come and proclaim and believe something that you don't. So I'd encourage you to stay where you are if that's not something you can do. Um, But I'm going to pray for us, and then um, we'll continue on with our time of response. So let's pray. Holy Father, I thank you again for the opportunity we've had uh, to be together this morning. Thank you for the opportunity we've had so far to meet with you in this place. God, I pray over the next few minutes as we continue to um, worship, as we continue to respond by singing, by taking communion, uh, by giving, by praying, whatever it may be. God, I pray that you would continue to be at work in our hearts and minds, that you would continue to elevate Jesus, that we might be drawn to you. Thank you that we can be reconciled to you and rightly related to you through the work of your son, Jesus. And God, we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.